century number 10 for Brendan Taylor. He's got the Australian captain. We're talking about Rivada. We're talking about how good he is. And there it is. It's 39th one day international 100. The King gets his crown at the Adelaide Oval. Go on, Tegan. Deep in Wigan. Glenn Maxwell celebrates. Eric Coley cannot believe it in the middle of the ground. Welcome to the DNet Stumps podcast. Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket show with expert analysis by Dean Duplessis. Hello and welcome to the Dean at Stumps podcast. Great to have you along. Yes, you can hear all sorts of crazy noises in the background. We're doing things slightly differently today. We not necessarily in touch with nature per se, but we're out in the garden so that we can get rid of that hollow, booming, echoey sound of the living room where the D-Nut Stumps podcast normally comes to you from. So you're going to hear all sorts of crazy stuff in the background just to add to the ambience of uh, what should be a very, very good conversation. Now then, he's uh, beginning to make really good strides in the commentary box and has done so probably for the last six, seven years. My first stint with him in the commentary box was back in 2013. He represented Zimbabwe from 2004 up into 2011 and uh, at times bowled quite magnificently, especially with the new ball. You will remember him for finishing off a game against Ireland in style when batting a number 11. He flicked the ball away for six with effortless ease. I don't think I need to make any more introductions. All the way from a town called Kadoma, which is where I'm also from, former Zimbabwe seaman, now commentator, Edward Charlie Rainsford. Ed, how are you doing? <laughs> uh, I thought you were going to say Brian Charles Rainsford there for a moment with that introduction. Hello, Dean. Hello, everybody. It's been a while. Uh, yeah. been living under a rock a little bit, mm. <laughs> to some degree. But how are you, Dean? I'm well. I've been having a great deal of fun interviewing all sorts of people from different walks of life. Kumar Sangakara, Graham Hick, uh, David Gower, A.B. de Villiers. There's a whole bunch of people. Jeepers. So uh, I've been having a lot of fun. And, um, of course, if you do want to subscribe, it's pretty simple. You just find your preferred podcast app or feed, as they call it. So be it Apple Podcast, Spotify, Overcast anything that has a cast in it uh, or that has a pod in it, any cast that has a pod in it, uh, also Google, and then you subscribe to the Dean at Stumps podcast. That is Dean and an AT, not the at sign, Dean at Stumps and some really magnificent stuff. Ed, so, yeah, it's been a bit of a topsy-turvy time for all of us. We all appreciate that, you know, the whole world has been upside down. So what have you been doing with yourself of late? Oh, Dean, where do I start, mate? Um, finished off a, a series in, in South Africa, Australia, South Africa, which was actually quite an exciting series. Yeah. I, around, I got home around the 7th of March to be, uh, which was sort of cut the line of COVID before everything started shutting yeah. down, didn't it? And uh, all the levels started coming in. So I've been at home. Um, uh, my mom has been gravely ill. She's had uh, stage four breast cancer, triple negative. It's one of the rarest, one of the rarer ones. Um, so she's gone through chemotherapy, 18 cycles of chemotherapy, and she's just recently had a, a bilateral mastectomy. And now uh, we are awaiting her body to recover before she starts radiation. So she's fighting the fight, the good fight. And, uh, you know, you, you look at life sometimes and you, you think you've got issues and there are people close to you and people that are not even close to you that are dealing with even bigger issues. Um, so I've been doing that. I've been doing a bit of homeschooling, helping my wife now. Again. She does the homeschooling. She's going to listen to this. Uh, she's doing the homeschooling. I'm sort of the, the bad PE teacher. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, I just finished off my second degree uh, with uh, UCT uh, in sports management. So, I, I, I fair, you know, with, with everything else, and my in-laws are stuck in the Washington, D.C. They contracted COVID. 
as well and uh, sort of come through that but uh, are thinking of coming home now so a lot of things have been happening yeah. Dean and it's yeah. been you know what it's been a, a time of reflection a time of uh, turbulence and um, the cr- cricket has also started to get back into it so I've been keeping my eye one eye on that and one eye on life uh, but I, I remain blessed my problems are no greater than anybody else's and we we're just talking about that prior to going on to this interview and that Let's stay blessed. Yeah, stay blessed, Ed, and I, I couldn't agree more with you on that one. Right now, I, I'd like you to take us back to to your childhood and tell us about the town that you grew up in, because it's very interesting, isn't it? We we are both from, I suppose, different walks of life, if I can put it to you that way. We both grew up in the same time, town. Admittedly, I'm a fraction older than you, but we both would have had very different experiences. So, mm. so tell us about your family and. Tell us what it was like growing up in Kadoma and how you were then introduced to cricket. Um, so, as you rightfully say, born and bred in Zimbabwe in a small town called Kadoma. It's about 140 k's from Harare, uh, known for cotton mining, um, and Dean and Ed. <laughs> Solomon Mire, <laughs> yes, Neville Maziva. Solomon Maziva, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Uh, the Steads, um, there's so many sporting people that have come from there. And so I'm one of four. Older brother Henry lives in Pretoria, and my brother Joseph lives in Victoria Falls. My sister was a school teacher at Bryden and then Eaglesvale and then Gateway. Then she played cricket for Zimbabwe and then she played rugby for Zimbabwe. Um, so I'm one of four. I'm the youngest uh, of uh, parents. My dad was a, uh, a white gentleman. Uh, he passed away in 1999, and my mom, he was a, a mine manager for various mines in the area. Came from a mining background. His heritage is Irish, um, and my mom is a black African woman who was a, a nurse all her life. Uh, she gave uh, 40 years to to the nursing profession. Wow. Um, growing up, uh, do you know? It, 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 so my dad married a, a black woman and um, during those times and even at these times now where we, we're facing different challenges that have now surfaced, it, it uh, faced a lot of segregation in the, in the sense that um, my, my extended family from the, the white side, um, I never met until my dad died in 1999. Um, uh, they came to pay their respects and you know once you grow up you sort of as a child you you're not quite sure why you never fit in or why you never accepted sometimes and we lived a very conservative life um, not many friends uh, obviously you know you're mixed race your mom's black your dad's white you're not sure where you fit in sometimes and sometimes you, you ask your question why why does why does your Why does your family not like your mom? Why does your Why why can't they um Why can't they love her like you love her? Yeah. Yeah, it's a difficult one. It is it is a very very difficult one, Ed and um, I would, I would imagine that even there would have been times in your your cricketing career where you would have been faced with uh, 
because it's interesting, you know, there's, there's been a lot of emphasis on the, the Black Lives Matter movement, which is understandable. But I often feel that often the mixed race people of Southern Africa, so Zimbabwe and South Africa, they, they often uh, get totally overlooked, if I can put it that way, because it's either black or white. And you, you often find that the mixed race communities are the the filling of a of a ghastly sandwich if that makes sense yeah um i i was a bit different because i didn't grow up in a in a, in a colored community community or a mixed race community if, um, if i can get that right um i grew up my dad was white like i said my mom was black but because my my white family didn't accept us or didn't even accept my father because he decided to make that choice of loving a black woman and marrying a black woman we heavily gravitated to my mom's side of the family who are black and so that is where a lot of our support came from if my, my mom you know those days and I think it still happens night duty where my mom would start work at six in the evening and finish at six at night, and my dad would have to be out the house at six or five in the morning to go to work. So we had a lot of support from her family, her brothers, her cousins. And so you, I, and I, and I've seen myself as black all my life, and I still see myself as, as black because I've never, regardless of my, of my skin color, it's, um, it's, uh, it's how I grew up and how I accepted things and how I've decided to take things on because like I said I wasn't brought up in a community of, of mixed race where uh, people thought well okay you're part of that and even uh, like you you can, uh, and because I, I played cricket and because I was, uh, became exposed to the world you, you sort of then start getting on with along with other people but you're still gravitating to a very conservative side of life and so you're not sure whether you're, you're mixed race, you know, or, or, you're, or you're you're white. You understand what mm -hmm. I mean? Yeah. So even when you you try and decide to, to to sort of get closer to to the mixed race side of of of, of uh, the demographic, sometimes they don't accept you because they almost think, well, he's not really one of us. They, you sort of, you, I don't know if it's a it's a sixth sense or. You're not really accepted in, in that sense. So, so those are the difficult sides because even when you're growing up from different angles, because you're in the middle, as you rightfully say, mixed race, some people would say, you, have you been peeled? Or have you been slightly burnt? You know? <laughs> uh, you never, it's difficult, Dean. It's, diff it's a difficult conversation to have. A very difficult con conversation to have without breaking down entirely. Um, and did you did you find that as you progressed in your cricketing career that you felt more comfortable socializing and interacting with the black players versus the white players? Naturally, I gravitated to the, the, the black players. That's, that's just how I was brought up, and that's where I I, I um, um, felt more comfortable. Um, but. You know, I have fantastic relationships with the white players that I've, I've, I was part of and coaches that, that coached me and people I played with or people I played against. Um, but 
I never ever saw myself as a mixed race person, if you get what I mean. I never saw myself as Caucasian either. Um, I think the wounds that I carry are, are from my upbringing, mainly. I, there were instances, I would go, we would go and play cricket anywhere around the world and some of the things would be called, uh, do you know, like, <laughs> you, you'd, I, and I can't say that right now because it's, a, it's, a, it's quite, uh, very derogatory. quite, yeah, very abrasive stuff. Uh, and that, that would be a collective, isn't it? Yeah. But if you're on the edge of the boundary and someone sort of says something, there's nothing you can do about it. But it's it's that mentality of just, why can't we just see each other as as everybody? Why does there have to be a, a sort of separation because of color? Um, but having said that, again, I, I've got, a, like I said, I've got along with a lot of, my, my, my white uh, counterparts either playing with or against I mean I played in England as well and uh, there were times there where you sort of ooh something, something's not right here um, and sometimes because people didn't know that you're sort of mixed race and you go to other parts of the world someone would automatically just think you're Muslim mm. yeah. because of the colour of your skin um, it's quite a naive sort of way of thinking about it but that's how they see things, you know. So, yeah, Dean, <laughs> you ask hard questions. <laughs> it, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, 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 but of course these things do need to be, it's a bit about, it's a bit like lancing a boil, you know, you know that Oof. the boil is there and sadly sometimes that, that muck, that, that is part of the healing process needs to be lanced and squeezed and pricked out of that boil, which is very painful, let me tell you, having had a few boils in my life. Ed, you've also played cricket in Australia, you've played cricket in England. Were you treated any differently? So in other words, were you, were you amongst the Australians and amongst the English people, were you treated any worse than what you would have been here in, in Southern Africa or were you treated better? I wouldn't say worse or better. I think I was treated fairly well. I mean, when I went to Australia and I played for Gunnell Cricket Club, man, some of the best times of my, of my life. <laughs> and, you know, I would end up, would end up like three or four of us from the club uh, going out for one or two bottles of water and uh, end up just sleeping uh, on the couch in, in one of the guy's apartments. Like, I never had any issues with that. I, if, I, if I did, I never saw it or I, I, it wasn't directed at me and maybe it was really kept away from me, but I had fantastic times over there. In England, same thing. I still have fantastic... I still have conversations with people from my old club in a club in australia i have people still in touch from all the clubs that i played for in england and i never had an issue ever ever had an issue um but having said that it could have been withheld from me i don't know but i cannot say categorically that yeah. i had someone come up to me or someone treat me a certain way um, it may be yeah. a situation where it's best, it's best that you don't know about it. I mean, I suppose I, guess, I, could, yeah. I could suffer something similar with the fact that me being blind, I, I would imagine a lot of things could be withheld from me. And it's maybe better that we don't know about it. Mm. It's maybe better that we don't know about it. So, obviously growing up, you, you were introduced to cricket. And as you've already alluded to, Yvonne, your sister, was a very good cricketer and also a fine rugby player, represented Zimbabwe at both sports, as you've already said. Now... Did you ever have the privilege, as a youngster, of being able to travel from Kadoma up to Harare to watch 
international cricket. So, I mean, obviously in 1996, that incredible England series, now you would have been quite young, what, about 10 years old, give or take? <laughs> but even so, you would have been old enough to have understood, being a cricket lover, that, you know, there's, there's something very special happening. We have the England cricket team in the country. Were you ever lucky enough as a kid, like so many of us, to travel to Harare Sports Club or even Queens down in Bulawayo and watch the team in action? Um, once I, I, I once came to Harare Sports Club. I think it was a it's quite a famous test match. I think Andy Flower got a hundred in each innings, did he? Uh, that is against South Africa. And he got hundred and ninety nine yeah. in two thousand and one. Yeah, so I, I, I that was the only one that I attended and that was still when the ground was still quite old and there was still some construction going on, yes. so it was slightly open. Yeah. So that was the only one that I as a child I, I was or as a young person uh, enjoyed. You know, seeing South Africa go against uh, Zimbabwe live. Other than that, I used to listen to Radio 1. We didn't have a television. Yeah. So I used to listen to Radio 1 when there was radio commentary back in the days in the 90s. Um, and besides that, I used to go to the Kadoma Library. And then they used to have the Cricketer magazine. I don't know if you still remember Very it. Well. And so you would read or see these images and see the scorecards and... Uh, and, and so those are the those are the only interactions I had before I started taking cricket seriously, and being able to. I remember looking at a picture. This is from the blue Paul Adams. Oh my goodness! Yeah. And looking at this picture, and I was like, "What is this guy bowling?" <laughs> <laughs> and you know, you'd actually like try to like imitate it, yeah, but you, you yeah. didn't have the run-up because you could never see, you didn't have a television, but you'd see the picture and this guy's head is down, but his head, arm is almost perpendicular over his head and his <laughs> wrist is broken. So I'm thinking, is he bowling left arm leg spin? And that was what it was, isn't it? Yes, it was. Yeah, so, yes, was. Uh, and, you, and then you'd see the, the so many other things in, in the Cricketer magazine. So those are my interactions and then radio, radio obviously commentary and, and listening to things like that. Did you find cricket or did cricket find you? I looked for cricket. Eh? I was so desperate for it. And before my, my dad passed away, he sort of brought me to the game a little bit. And um, I sort of had to learn as I went on how to hold the ball, not how to hold the ball and walking in and stuff like that. I remember uh, Sir John Kennedy I played with. Uh, so I've known Graham Creamer since we were like probably like 10, 5 years old because he went to Eiffel Flats and we used to play against each other all the time. And so he, he sort of learned like how these guys would play cricket, you know, and you're like, wow, he's a leg spinner, but why am I running up and bowling seam? So then you sort of understand those sort of things. And then the ZC, uh, ZCU development coaches or the ZC coaches those times then would come and teach you, like, you know, a seam bowler would be the fingers pointing down the seam and then you'd have leg spin opening the ball, uh, op virtually opening the door. Like if you had a doorknob, you'd open it anti-clockwise and then for the off spinner, it would be clockwise. And so when you did your level one and level two, you'd be like, ah, wow. that's what it was. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. I've never heard anybody describe it like that. Now, for a person who's a novice and who's, who doesn't understand much about the cricket, that's a very good description. But even for people who are blind, visually impaired, like myself, nobody's ever described it as, you know, the, the using it as a doorknob. That's yeah. unbelievable. So... Anyway, so you made your, your way through the various age groups, as one does. Mm -hmm. And uh, then the next thing, at the age of 15, you make not your club debut, but your first-class debut playing for the Midwest Rhinos. Yeah. So this is not club cricket, it's first-class cricket at an incredibly young age. Did you feel quite intimidated playing with some seriously good cricketers, or did you just take to it in your usual edge manner? You, know, you, you just 
at, at that age, all you're looking to do is enjoy. Yeah. And at that age, your eyes are just like popping out your eye sockets because now you're like, as you say, you're literally next to Sean Irvin, you're, you're next to David Mutendera, you're next to all these cricketers that have played for Zimbabwe in the past and you're thinking, wow, you know, let me just enjoy this moment. And, and that's mainly how I, I sort of took I never thought a lot about how to read the game early on. So the captain would give give you a, a, a very simple... I was 15, 16 when I made my first-class debut. So it was mainly about keeping things as simple as possible and trying to enjoy it and keeping it as, as you say, as naive to the game as possible and just allowing it to absorb into you, I guess, was, was the thing. And then all you'd enjoy after that was the lunches and the teas, you know? <laughs> and then, yeah, so that's how I sort of approached it at that point. And then when you sort of started getting hit around sometimes as a bowler would, in some cases, because you'd encounter a flat wicket, then you'd have to think, well, oh, this is how you have to adjust your length and this is the plan. You no longer have two slips in a gully. You have one slip in a gully and a catcher at cover. Mm -hmm. So you're thinking, well, I've got to bowl straight, don't I? And straight is not bowling at leg stump. Straight is bowling at off stump. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, because if you're bowling too straight, you obviously end up on the batsman's pads and he clips yeah. you away effortlessly. So who was your captain for the Rhinos? Uh, Dougie Marilia was our captain for for a while and Dirk Villeune as well because it was always about... Because Zim had diff, uh, various tours. So if, if Dougie went on tour and Dirk would, wouldn't make the tour, he would captain and it would interchange in that manner. I think Alistair Maraguede also captained a few games. Uh, Bomber Campbell uh, obviously also captained a few games. They were both wicket keepers as well, Alistair and uh, Bomber. Uh, so just to so Bomber is Donald Campbell, and yeah, that's well, the, the younger no. brother of Alistair, <laughs> Alistair Campbell Zimbabwe, former captain. Yeah, so that yeah, that's Bomber. <laughs> <laughs> And then, Ed, um, you, uh, then suddenly you had a very, very interesting situation as an aeroplane roars ahead. It's, it's, do you know how low it is? Do you know? It's incredibly low. Just got it? It's right just above our heads and the skies are opening. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. It, it reminds me, I've heard many interviews uh, and podcasts being done, actually, where you will actually, where on the, uh, when you're listening to, to the BBC and you at the Oval of Lords, which is situated in London, you, you hear these aeroplanes come roaring in to land at Gatwick or Heathrow. So very similar. There you are. Uh, 2004, that's when things started happening for you in a very big way. Off you went to the Under-19 World Cup. You were playing in Bangladesh at the time, and of course everybody loves to hear the story about Zimbabwe's famous seven-wicket win over Australia. Now, we've heard Tino Moyo's story and how he described it as the captain. We're still one day going to hopefully speak to Tanashi Panyangara and, and hear his side of it. I want you to tell me your story. So you weren't amongst the wickets, but you were certainly a part of the team. It was quite a, it's quite a funny story. And I hope Tino and Moyes were listening to this because that's one guy that should have captained um, Zimbabwe, uh, I think. He's got a fantastic cricketing uh, brain. But I don't know if it was his decision or it was the coach's decision. It was Phil Simmons at the time. But I, I'll, give, I'll give credit to, um, to Tino on this occasion. Uh, I, uh, Tinashe Panyagara opened the bowling and I, he got hit for a couple of boundaries and you thought of playing Australia and you think and you've seen what's happened in previous World Cups and you think they're a better cricketing nation just on the face of their, uh, of their history and it's Australia he went for a couple of boundaries and then I bowled my over wasn't that great either it was indifferent and I, and I, I don't know what prompted it and I think it was just you know intuition or trying something different I think I bowled one or two overs, I think it's one. And Tino just said, no, I, 
let me try Alton from this end. And with that change, and after uh, Chalky or Tinashe Panyangara is over, or after he went for a few boundaries, it just, it, it, it's almost that those two bowlers were totally unplayable. Mm. Australia had no answers for them. And fantastic change, because I could have probably gone for 50 in six. <laughs> you never know. But that change in, cap, uh, change in, in strategy really was so important because Elton brought the ball back sharply and Tinashe Panyangara sort of seamed the ball away and it was difficult because once he got it on a good length, it, it was a bit like Vernon Philander that would come in sharply or take off and it would have a little bit of extra bounce and they just went through this side. I mean, and in, I mean, a stroke of genius and we bowled them out for 70-odd and after that, we got the runs, I think, three or four down and famous victory for us and we went on to beat Canada and we actually pushed Sri Lanka close as well. And from there, we then went on to play England and Pakistan. And uh, it was a good good World Cup for us. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, I think the last team who really played very good uh, World Cup cricket, well, there would have been the 2006 under-19 side. And then there was, of course, the infamous... Was it 2015 with that appalling mancate where... Uh, Kimar Paul. I think 2016. 2016. Yeah. When uh, he ran Richard Ngaraba. That, that was also a very good World Cup yeah, for Zimbabwe. Was, I mean, oh, but uh, talk about a man cat. Do you think that's fair? Rules are rules, though. Eh? Yeah, rules. rules. Are rules. Look, yeah, l- rules are rules, as you say. So I guess inter- if you want to interpret it strictly as the rules, you know, we don't really have much of a leg to stand on. But if you want to play it just in terms of sportsmanship, which we've been taught as cricket lovers that we should try and do at all times, then I'm afraid, no, I'm... I, I don't like it, but, you know, it, it's, he didn't actually do anything wrong, did he? No, and we've got to take the rules away from it. It's laws now. Yeah, laws, laws, the laws. Right. I, and, you know what, I was, I was sort of all, all up in arms about it, and I thought, well, sportsmanship and blah, 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 and this and this and that. But remember, let's go back to the 2019 World Cup, when Ben Stokes is trying to make his ground and the ball ricochets off his bat mm. and goes away for four. And sort of now they're within touching distance of winning the World Cup, do you sort of say, oh, sportsmanship, let me take it back? Even if it had hit the stumps, it would have been overthrows. Yeah, it, would. it would have been four. Yeah. So you can't change that on the, on the advent that it was a direct hit or it was a poor throw. You've just got to take on the laws and accept them for, for what they are. Um, and I, I guess that's, that, that's the making of the game. And they're always going to be recycled and made better in, in various aspects. And we see now in England how they're trying to make uh, light and, and rain delays a bit more manageable to get more time out of the game or the day. So then you come back from Bangladesh and Zimbabwe are themselves in the middle of hosting Bangladesh in what, what was supposed to have been two test matches and five one-day internationals as it was for Zimbabwe back in those early 2000s. Zimbabwe won the first test match very convincingly at Harare Sports Club, uh, went down to Bulawayo where uh, the test match was hampered by severe, very, very heavy and wet outfield. There was probably only a day and a half of cricket that was played there. The one-day games were messed with as well by the weather. And Zimbabwe weren't playing, well, to be fair, neither team were playing particularly good cricket. Probably a lot of it had to do with the pitches that they were playing on due to the fact that there was so much bad weather around. But now you've just got back from Bangladesh where you had a whole bunch of success. You Back in Kadoma, I remember you telling this lovely story that you bought your mother a radio with a CD player. It's still there. It's a little silver one. Really? Still there. Oh, that, yeah. that, that's a lovely story. So you're spending a bit of time with mum. Probably maybe Yvonne would have... Would she have been in Harare already? No, she was still... Uh, 
sort of doing some 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 training in terms of teaching. Ah. Yeah. So she was she was, it was just mom, myself, and Yvonne. Yeah. Right. Spending a bit of family time together, and little did you, as an 18-year-old, know that very very soon you were going to be drafted into the national team. So forget about playing for Zimbabwe A and you know all the so-called correct procedures that a cricketer is supposed to to undergo before graduating for the national team when he's had a bit of experience of playing first-class cricket under his belt. Now, you had played a bit of first-class cricket for the Rhinos, but now suddenly you're in a situation overnight, practically, where you are now part of the squad. So you're now rubbing shoulders with one or two senior players who, who didn't play, but they would have been around at the hope of maybe coming back to play. Is, again, is that a situation where you find yourself, because you're so young, you just think, ah, oh, yeah, let's just roll with the punches? Or did you, did you start to experience a bit of uh, butterflies and saying, gosh, you know what, I could actually be running in on bowling one of these days? Yeah, at that time, uh, come, came back from the Under-19 World Cup and there was an A tour that went back to Bangladesh. And uh, some of the players from the Under-19 World Cup, were, because of their performances, rightfully were in that A side, like Tinashe Panyagara, Elton, uh, Stan Marisa, I think, uh, Prosper Otsea. So I, I came home and then I, was in, I, got, I got a message that I, I, was in, I was enrolled into the academy. So I then went... After spending some time at home, went and be, I was enrolled at the CFX Academy, right. um, and the and the other players came back because they had been playing cricket, and they were then fast tracked into those two Test matches against Sri Lanka, and so then the rumblings then became reality that some players just took a stand that they weren't going to play, and so I think Zimbabwe cricket were then not going to be held at ransom and said we we are going to then have what are these talented young guys to go in and try and fill these very big shoes at Test Match Cricket. And now you must remember that Sri Lankan side that came out here, big-time players. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, one has 800 Test wickets. <laughs> one was an okay left-hander. I think you've had an interview with him. The other was a good right-hander as well. So these are unbelievable players. And now Test Cricket is, is something that, takes time that you, you obviously need to get your feet under the desk literally and, and, and learn over a period of time. So we're thrust into this situation. We're playing test cricket. I was at the academy after those two test matches, which were not great for Zimbabwe cricket. Us as 17, 18, 19-year-olds were then in the spotlight of poor performances and getting almost ripped to shreds on our performances. And we were like, Wow. But that's professional sports, and we sort of grabbed those opportunities with both hands, and we, we just wanted to go out there and play international cricket. We didn't, weren't too worried about what was happening off the field. Because we were so young, it, we couldn't have a, a great say in that because some players had actually taken a stand, which we didn't quite know about, and we were asked to just get in there and play. You know? And that's all we wanted to do as youngsters. And now we're on the biggest stage, and... We're playing against Australia. We're playing against Sri Lanka. And it was a difficult time, to be very honest, you know, because of the results. But, and I think if, if, I, if the players that I played with and some that are still playing, if you probably listen to this, I think when we were sitting in the change room, yes, there were bad performances at times where we were thinking, wow, this is hard and sort of being held to account. I think there were times in those situations where most guys were enjoying the opportunity and not thinking too much. I think there was a simplistic approach to it. But over a period of time, then it starts, you start really start getting the pressures of 
the the results and what people are also saying off the off the field. Uh, that that situation, I guess, where the honeymoon is over, sort of. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hundred percent. The honeymoon is over. Um, uh, uh, I'm leaving uh, the towel on the floor, <laughs> toothpaste, <laughs> toothpaste, the toothpaste cap is off, and all that kind of stuff. So now we're international sportsmen. We're accountable to the nation. We're accountable to journalists. We're accountable to our results. And I think at a lot, a lot of that time, we didn't quite actually realize it until it really started getting real. Do you think that there was a, a certain, and I mean, I can understand to a certain extent how Zimbabwe cricket felt they weren't going to be held to ransom by a lot of players who, to be perfectly honest, at, at for some time were actually underachieving. You know, there were only a handful of players who could honestly put their hand up and say, I belong in the side. Obviously, Streak, uh, Sean Urban... And, and a couple of others, but Ray Price probably would have been one of them. Maybe Craig Wishart at the time was playing very, very well. Mm. But to be honest, Sean with Irvin. You, yeah, Sean Irvin. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he was really finding his, finding him, discovering himself as a cricketer. There's no doubting. Campbell Macmillan was a fantastic find at the time. We needed, you know what? In international cricket, you have people with pace. It's a huge, 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 huge asset. Yeah, absolutely. But looking back at it now, Ed, I mean, you, you, this is just, I guess, a rhetorical question. But do you think maybe that Zimbabwe cricket? could have been less stubborn and because don't forget there would have been emotional scarring mm. to the players you know so it's easy enough that you would say well there were only 17 18 so a lot of what they said probably that it wouldn't have really affected them as the media and and so on the sort of things that people would have said but don't forget that they were young but they were also old enough to understand that they weren't in the team because they had done all the hard work they were mm. there because of a situation that was beyond their control so do you think that some of these players have been mentally and emotionally scarred by having situation or by, by being put in situations that could have been dealt with very differently? You, you know, Dean, when you look back at it now and you look at some of the legacy issues that Zimbabwe cricket has, has had, you sort of think that particular situation was always going to happen. Yeah. Right. So you go back to 2000, 2001, England. Uh, I think the players took a stand together and said, you know, maybe we're not earning enough. And I can be corrected if I'm right and wrong no, here. No, you're quite right. And I think Andy Flower was the captain. Yeah. But he's the captain. Then overnight, he's, he's no longer the captain. And now Heath Streak is the captain who was supposedly supposed to have a, a, a buy-in into what the players are doing. So there's already a breakdown there. And I think um, not necessarily what Dave Houghton said in his interview, but there were issues from a, from a long period that if they were corrected or if there was a fluid transition into players and situations and everybody sort of was on the same page and these things didn't sort of spring up or these things didn't happen where we are. And when you say we are, if you say there's 20 of us, I don't think that's a right approach. I think if you're saying we are, it's all of us. And once it's all of us, the administration definitely then sees it as a holistic thing and then you have a conversation about it and then there isn't emotional scarring and then there isn't uh, a situation where Zimbabwe cricket goes through turmoil. But you don't look at that one situation and think, well, that was the be and an end of Zimbabwe cricket. I think there were other issues and maybe you and I are not privy to those situations, but I think there were that weren't handled properly where sometimes the organization was held to ransom and then sometimes the organization held the players to ransom. And so it then created a trend that didn't actually end. But I, th I think 
that sort of situation needs to probably come to an end where cricket always needs to win. If cricket doesn't win, then I didn't have a livelihood. Journalists who follow the game don't have a livelihood. The groundsmen then don't have a livelihood. There's a bigger picture here. And I think if that had been all taken into account and not, say, I'm 15 or 20 guys saying, well, we're not going to play and that's the end of Zimbabwe cricket, I think that was a bit of an unfair situation. Because if you look at what happened two, three years later, I think some of the players actually came back. And they played with Zimbabwe, for Zimbabwe, with the players that actually filled some voids. And we still didn't quite get the results. Yeah, and I mean, many people ask the question: Do you think? And I mean, let's put it, let's put the the fact aside that Zimbabwe aren't playing as much cricket as what they would have done 15, 20, or say 20, 25 years ago. We understand that, but a lot of people ask the question: Is this current Zimbabwe team really? any worse off than what the, the team of the late 1990s and early 2000s were. Yes, they played a lot more cricket than this current generation of players. We understand that. But if you, in, in, from a, a result perspective mm. uh, and the equations from a percentage value, I wonder how much better the percentage, the ratio would be in terms of a win-lose situation from the team of the 1990s, early 2000s to the team of the mid-2000s up to now. So if you look at it as a statistical point of view, the team that's played since 2004, 5, 6 have actually done slightly better than the team that uh, played earlier. And a lot of people will, will argue the, the point that perhaps Zimbabwe have started playing more against Bermuda, Afghanistan, Bangladesh, uh, the Hollands of the world. But that's a transition of cricket. Cricket begins to grow. So you're going to play more of those players. And also, you must also realize Zimbabwe cricket didn't play test cricket between 2000 and... 2005 and 2011. Yes. So, again, then you look at, well, the percentage of that, you sometimes ha- can't really take it into account. But it's a reality. So the, 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 the crop actually did, in a percentage perspective, better. And Arun, I brought this up in commentary in Bangladesh at one stage, and he went out and found it, that Zimbabwe, from that point, did slightly better. But people will argue that they're playing more cricket and playing maybe lesser opponents. And I don't like people saying lesser opponents. No. Teams are teams. You're playing against each other. On the day, the better team will win. Zimbabwe beat Australia in a T20 World Cup. Holland beat England at Lords. So England beat, uh, sorry, Ireland beat England in, in Bangalore. So I don't like that narrative of saying slightly lesser teams. Yes, and people are playing more cricket. So what will always be remembered though are the, the, the players who did better or the players who really stood out. Andy Flower, I mean, there's no one that will ever argue about how good he was. No one will ever argue about how good Trevor Madondo was, but he never played a great deal. But I, I never saw him personally, but what I hear was he has a fantastic Ellingen player. Craig Wishart, the, some of the, the shots he would, his cover drive, it's almost like he's trying, the, the way he hits the ball is like the ball is, is meant to pop. Elton Chigumbura, Prosper Otsea, Graham Kremer, Tino Mawoye, 163, not out against Pakistan. So uh, those, those performances sometimes overshadowed the results so that sometimes those things would be remembered in certain areas and let's not forget Brendan Taylor yeah, we, 
We kind of, I don't know, we, we, we never really remember Brendan Taylor, do we? And yet he's Oh, you got to. Yeah, you, of course you do. Certainly you do. But I, I guess, you know, I don't know. To me, I always feel that at times, and again, you mentioned Andy Flower, because he was a bit more consistent, and I say this with respect to, to Brendan, you know, you kind of remember. But if you look at, at Brendan Taylor's record, he has a better record than one, Andy Flower in one-day international cricket. Mm. He scored more hundreds. Have, uh, we, have we left out Hamilton? Hamilton Masakadza, yeah, thank you. I, there's yeah. another name, I mean... You know, a real unsung hero for Zimbabwe, but because he averaged, say, 26 or 27, which admittedly isn't good enough for a top-order international batsman or even first-class batsman, you, you, you kind of forget what Hamilton actually did in terms of how many hundreds he scored for in one-day cricket and even vital innings that he played in test matches to get Zimbabwe into or to get them out of trouble and into reasonably good positions as well, I guess, Ed. Yeah, but Dean, if you, if you sort of put the, the, the issues and the emotional issues and all these other things aside, yeah. and you get all those players, Dougie Hondo, Sean Irvin, Andy Flower, Elton Shikumbura, Graham Creamer, Dave Houghton. All Dave Houghton, all of them together, put everything else aside, do you think Zimbabwe cricket would have been better off there or less off? I think it would have been better off because there's a trans, there's this transition, there's, there's there's an acceptance of moving the game forward. There's always going to be issues. I I, I think I spoke to you, uh, and I said to you, my wife and I will never, will not always agree. Well, sometimes I'm more in trouble than she is. <laughs> but I have the same problem. But but yeah, I'll give it a basic. Uh, Dean, you and I could could not maybe agree on certain things. You probably think Sachin Tendulkar is the best batter in the world. I would probably think Brian Lara. But that's just how we feel about things. But that doesn't make us, le- that doesn't make us less agreeable yeah. on the game of cricket and moving the game of cricket forward. So if all those things sort of... And it's not perfect. That's the thing. I want you to tell me about a very special game. And it was the third and final one-day international between Zimbabwe and Australia. So naturally, Australia had won the series. And even if Zimbabwe had been at their best that would still have been the case but such was the dominance of Australia in the early 2000s with your Matthew Hayden Adam Gilchrist Ricky Ponting Damian Martin Michael Clark. it's a very very good uh, middle top and middle order but anyway so third and final one day international finally we hear this guy by the name of Ed Rainsford making his debut now I was in the commentary box I was off air but I was in the commentary box and Michael Hazeman and Dean Jones were in commentary and I would say that you were about seven deliveries into your spell. Dean Jones, in his very to-the-point way and an abrupt manner that he speaks and says, Hi, this guy looks a bit like Alan Donald in his approach to the wicket. But I want you to... And we were, so obviously the question started flying around media centre. Why had Ed Rainsford not played earlier? Where has he been? Has he been injured? Was it a bit frustrating knowing that you had... So you're now in a situation, you're in the squad... Um, and you'd been left out a couple of times, your 12th man. That must have been very disappointing for you. Uh, time and place, I guess, yeah. you know, I think the selectors felt that that 11 was the best one. Even prior, I, I, the two test matches against Sri Lanka and then those three ODIs against Australia. So you sort of thought, oh, I'm in the mix, but I'm not really getting an opportunity. And I've actually, I actually got my opportunity because Dougie Honda got struck on the side of the head. It was He bowled and um, Ricky Ponting drove the ball back but like uh, fiercely and it hit him on the side of the head and actually cut his ear so he was unable to play at that point and there were no concussion sort of uh, uh, protocols at that side and I think the doc made the right call and then Jeff Marsh said to me the selectors have decided that you're playing tomorrow Ed because Dougie's not 
uh, fit. And I think if Dougie had been fit, he would have still played. So that's how I ended up getting into the side. And having not, having missed out, Dean, everything happens for a reason. It, it, it fell that I got that opportunity that day and I didn't even get a wicket, but I enjoyed the experience to go against probably one of the outside of, I think outside of the West Indies in the 70s and the 80s. That was one of the strongest uh, cricketing sides going around because Shane Warne was still playing, Glenn McGraw was out here, Jason Gillespie was out here. As you say, Ricky Ponting, Hayden, Gilchrist, Simons. Like, and for me, it was an absolute privilege to be on the field with them at the same time, but also wanting to perform. A couple of things I remember about that series. The first thing I remember is that Tinashe Panyangara had the wood over Matthew Hayden, got him out almost every time that they played. What I also remember very distinctly was in that third game where you made your debut, do you remember how well Alton Chikumura batted in his innings of 77? Yeah, and he batted so well with another person that could have got more opportunities but injuries let him down was Sai Kankala. Yeah. They had a fantastic little partnership. But then you look at Alton just standing up and just hitting the ball to all parts of Harari Sports Club. And this is one of the most scariest bowling attacks or scariest sides going around. And... He just expressed himself. I think he kept things really simple and he just saw ball and hit ball and made the right decisions, maybe rotated the strike here and there. But his ability to strike the ball at the death, I think he also, there's one particular game he took me apart and and we shared an apartment together. I think we didn't talk for like three days. (laughs) Then we had a bottle of water, then we were all good. Uh, (laughs) Is it red? Does the water have a tinge to it? I'm not quite sure. I don't remember because we then consumed about uh, a few bottles of water. A couple of months later, you're off to the ICC Champions Trophy in England. So that was Zimbabwe's last visit to England as an official international side. And you, so the ICC Champions Trophy used to be the knockout Champions Trophy, and then the format changed in 2002. But 2004, you were in a group with England and Sri Lanka. So Edgbaston is the venue, and you're running in, and you're bowling, and you're up against England. Just tell us... Tell us that whole build-up as to how you got the wickets, and I remember somebody had to come and tell you that you need to wake up because you're supposed to be. You're going to be. Just take us through that lovely story. Yeah, you know, Dean. Um, England is is, is 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 a different place to play cricket. I mean, the, the crowd is full. Everyone's enjoying themselves, and they're out there to really watch cricket. They're such cricket lovers, and um, I remember Tnashik Panyangara opened the bowling with Dougie Hondo, and Dougie nicked off Thruskothic. A really bold pace just nicked him off and we thought well, are we in here because it was sort of like a becoming a bit gloomy and the ball was moving around a bit looked like we if we get the ball in the right area we could pick up wickets and then Tanashi's first over I don't know I've forgotten how many wides he bowled and Tatenda he was someone that really was focused on your, on your ability because he believed everybody had a, an ability and he wanted them to do their best and so he, he just decided to make the change there. But I, I, was, I was so focused on looking around at the stadium. Wow, gosh, look at all these people. They're here to watch us, you know. And I saw, I, I didn't really pay attention. And Saik and Kala, Malik and Kala came around. And he's like, Ed, Tatenda's been trying to tell you all over that you need to bowl. And I literally got sick. I was just like, he said, he said you asked me to do what? <laughs> <laughs> and funny enough, got the ball in hand, a little bit of away shape. Found the uh, Michael Vaughan's outside edge. That was my first international wicket I cherish. And n- uh, Andrew Strice came out and 
nicked one as well. Superb catch by Tatenda Taibu. And I started to think, well, this is this internet. This is like it now. This is now. I can get anyone out. <laughs> and then I remember those days, I don't know why they decided that if, you, if there's rain and it rained, uh, why we had to then try and come back at that particular point. So say we finished after, tw- it started raining after 21 overs. We had to come back and start from 21 overs to finish oh. our innings and then we'd have to bat. So we had to come back the next day and then Vikram Solanke and I think Paul Collingwood just, you know, we, we lost all the momentum. And But it, it was a good outing. It was it was fantastic to be out there in a, in a foreign land and, and go against another very good side because I think they went, that's sort of the same side went on to win the Ashes. Yeah, and they got through to the final of that Champions Trophy as well where the, before the West Indies beat them in the final by, you remember Bradshaw and Courtney Brown. Gosh, getting the what West a Indies. game. Yeah, what a game. So, so there you are. It's, uh, those were your, your first two eight wickets, but then you were struck down by a horrific migraine, if I remember correctly. Horrible. I, I don't know what it, uh, what it was, but I had horrible migraines. Mm. And I would play through them, and sometimes I wouldn't. You know, sometimes it comes out your eye, but... Adrenaline takes over, but once they'd, you sort of calm down and the adrenaline subsides, then this thing just comes back. And I remember in Pakistan, because we went from England to Pakistan, I, I went for a, a bout of CT scans and all this, and it was just, just it's been part of my life since then. And um, the next day we came out and we, we didn't bat as well as we should, but then Elton again, making things look easy. I went out there and I don't know, I was probably 11. I was 11 on most occasions. <laughs> That's uh, batting a number 11, by the way. He wasn't 11 years old. <laughs> <laughs> and Elton was just hitting the ball. And when I got out there, he was just like, enjoy yourself. I'm like, Elton, these guys, I, I can't even see the ball. When I was out there uh, before I came out, you know, how am I going to see it now? And I remember Andrew Flintoff bowling and it just hit the splice and I called the run and he says, well, there you go, just drop and run. And I'm like, jump. I don't want to. I don't want to face that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things I, I would imagine that also disappointed you a great deal would have been the t- 2007 World Cup, which mm. of course was held in the Caribbean. Mm. It really wasn't a good time for Zimbabwe. Did it, it disappoint you and the team mm. that Zimbabwe or that Ireland were playing better cricket than Zimbabwe? You know, we had a we went to St. Vincent and we played Australia and Bermuda there as, as warm-up games. And against Australia, I mean, our batters did really well, especially Vusi. I mean, if there was pace on and it was short, but he, he really expressed himself a lot. But the bowlers struggled. And I remember after those two warm-up games, I think we had a hard conversation about what was the starting 11. And I remember... The, there was sort of a 11 or 12 guys that were, were given priority at practice that the, these guys would be the guys that would you know get an opportunity to play most of the games barring injury so you'd sort of turn up at, at, at practice and just bowl as a bowler would you wouldn't really get a lot of batting practice and whatever because there was this set amount of players that sort of were get a, a call in and I remember that first game against Ireland and you know what Ireland they were all about passion they were all about and really talented guys and Owen Morgan played for Ireland in that particular World yeah, Cup right. before he moved across to, to England so uh, a whole bunch of really uh, Trent Johnson I think uh, Niall O'Brien the O'Brien brothers um, so they had a really passionate talented side as well and they were hungry to succeed um, Eddie Burrell was their coach and Phil Simmons had been our coach and, uh, and he was now going to take over from Ireland after that 2007 World Cup so they had a lot of passion and following around that so I remember that particular one day, uh, first opening game for Zimbabwe against Ireland. I was throwing balls at Vusi Sibanda in the nets. 
And I think Anthony Ireland had a niggle and they weren't sure he should play. So what happened was I had Doc Machikicho come over to the Nets and say, Ed, they need you to warm up. You're playing. I said, pardon? Mm. Anthony's not up. And I think the toss had to be delayed because the team sheets had to change. And literally in the game, game sort of petered out. We needed one or two runs off the last over. We we ended up uh, tying the game. Um, and uh, Ireland was so chuffed to win that because I think Ireland for a number of years have been sort of uh, put to the side as a, as a cricketing nation until now. Obviously, they got testatus, but they really wanted to get the wood over some big nations and really say, you know what, we need more opportunities and stuff like that. And I think that's what that particular tie against us really um, gave them the confidence to go on and get the upsets that they did in the World Cup. But from our point of view, disappointing because I think there was an expectation of us doing better. I think the, the talent was there. I think we just didn't apply ourselves in various situations where we could have been more competitive and actually upset maybe even Pakistan in that World Cup as well because there were opportunities there. And Sabina Park, you know, it did a bit in the beginning, but then it became quite better friendly. So it was the team that sort of covered those three disciplines really well that day that, that got over the line. It, was very, it must have been very hurtful and frustrating, but, but it just seemed like that the team weren't really gelling together. I mean, obviously, we're just looking in from an outsider's perspective. You know, none of us were with you in, in the Caribbean, but it just seemed like there was something, there was a spark missing. I, mm. Like, for example, I know the players at times didn't necessarily, at your, so they didn't necessarily get on with the coach, the late Kevin Curran, may he rest in peace, um, you know, at, because of his, his discipline and, and so on at, at times. Mm the players didn't necessarily always see eye to eye and so didn't always want him as the coach. Uh, there, there, there was that aspect because of how he, he went about his work. You, you, you got to run 10Ks. You, you got to do a thousand press-ups and you must win games in your field. One thing about KC and as you say, may he rest in peace, is that he really emphasized on fielding. Like, you guys have just got to be... And I, I enjoyed that part of it. But in, in, the, in, in the industry of sport, not all players are going to get along with the coach. Mm. But remember something, you're a professional. You're in that team to perform. I, I watch a, a various a number of sports and follow a number of sports. Kevin Peterson didn't get along with Andy Flower. LeBron James didn't get on with some owners, but he's still one of the greatest basketball players of all time. Tom Brady is still playing American football at the age of 43, and he didn't get along with Bill Belichick, but he still won six, uh, six Super Bowl rings. So at the end of the day, as a professional, you've got to try and put that aside. And sometimes it's an excuse. And this it takes maturity sometimes. But when you're in, like you rightfully say, when you're in that particular st- stage, as a, now you're 21, 22, you're sort of like, oh, you know, you start sulking and this and this and that. But it takes time to grow into, into that professional aspect. Professional sport, profession, even if you're an accountant, if you don't do your job properly, you're going to get fired. If you're not going to get the results, you're not going to get selected, you get dropped. And that's just how, that's the nature of sport. So, another thing that was incredibly, uh, I, just, I just remember getting, hearing the news back home here in Zimbabwe and not knowing what to do with myself, when the news broke that after Ireland beat Pakistan, the next day, the coach of Pakistan, Bob Wilmer, had passed away. And you, Zimbabwe, were set to play Pakistan in a couple of days' time. You were all in the same hotel. 
How did that affect, I mean, obviously we know it affected Pakistan terribly. We saw some of their players sobbing their hearts out, and, and why wouldn't they? But did that affect you as a Zimbabwe team as well, even though it wasn't your coach who passed away? I think it affected the whole world. I think it affected everybody. But we shared the same hotel with, with all the teams, the Pegasus Hotel. So, you, you know, when you wake up in the morning, you never think something will go wrong, do you, Dino? It, it, it sort of jumps out at you. So I remember getting a knock on the door, everybody downstairs, don't touch anything, just leave your room, let's go downstairs, get downstairs and you hear that there's been the passing away of, of Bob Wilmer and I think the whole world, not just the cricketing world, was shook. And I think there was just like all these, you, you're not sure, does the World Cup keep going on? Are these group stages going to go on while this happens? How is, how are, first of all, how are Pakistan handling this? In fact, I should take that back. How is Bob Wilmer's family handling this? Then the people around him and then the team and then the teams around them. So there was a sense of real sadness. There was also a sense of what has really happened, you know. And yeah, it, it, was a, it was a strange time, Dean. It was a very strange time. So let's fast forward a couple of years now because we could carry on talking all day. I want to fast forward to a time where Jason Dizzy Gillespie came into Zimbabwe and specifically also came into your life as a coach of the Midwest Rhinos. So a uh, former Australian fantastic fast bowler and we have him here in Zimbabwe. Now you've said on a couple of occasions that Jason Gillespie was comfortably the best coach that you played under. Yes. Why? First of all, Dizzy, Jason Gillespie is just a very good guy. He's just a, a good good guy um he he i resonated with him i sort of like totally just grew grew on him you know and he kept things very simple but in his simplicity he did structure different players and ask them various questions and i remember he said to me run up too long ed losing the energy you swing the ball like you swing the ball for fun but you're not finding the outside edges as as often as you should you need to be bowling fuller and you need to be bowling at the stumps you need to attack the stumps all the time it's the length that a batter thinks he can drive but it's more the length the batter blocks because he thinks the th the stumps are under threat and because you swing the ball you'll generally find the outside edge and you've got a good off cutter and he worked with me for a very long time because i had just come back from a, a, a very bad ankle injury which i don't want to remember but it was the 11, 2011 World Cup. So to try and gain the confidence of trying to, first of all, trying to walk again, to trying to run again, to then trying to believe that where you had your injury, you can bowl again and be agile in the field. He gave me so much support. He invested so much time, in, and not just me and everybody in the, in the, in the, in the Midwest Rhino setup, on, on really keeping their skills simple but very effective. Do you think he would have had something very different to offer Zimbabwe cricket had he perhaps had a stint or two as head coach of the side? Well, you look at what he's done now. He's, he's gone from Yorkshire, making them one of county cricket's best sides. I think, I think they won the, the county championship on the bounce, I think two in a row or something like that, uh, with Gary Balance, Joe Root and Adil Rashid. He's gone to Sussex and done it well, Adelaide Strikers. He's, he's, so he is a very good coach. And I, and I think if in the Zimbabwean cricket setup, he would have made a massive difference because I think a lot of people respected him. 
and like you, you we've said right now he had a lot to offer um, overseeing the game and developing young players and developing the players that are then coming to coming through and they're making them uh, very very uh, competitive so 2011 you walked away from one day international well from international cricket but there was still a bit of a hope mm. that eventually you would be picked to play test match cricket now i remember in 2013 you in my opinion had the best first class season yeah. of your life yeah. you were taking wickets you were bowling considerably better than the majority of the seamers that got picked to go to the Caribbean. Yet, when it came time for the squad to be announced and to be picked, you were excluded. Mm. Did the fact of not playing Test cricket hurt you? Yes. Um, I think I did everything I could to play Test cricket. Just never got the nod, never got onto a plane to, to a Test tour. Uh, besides Bangladesh, I, I woke up with seven stress fractures in 2006, I think. Couldn't play, had to go home, rehab. Uh, New Zealand came out here for test matches. I was in the squad, didn't get the nod. India came out here. I think it was Ganguly's sort of last uh, series, or it was one of his last. was in the squad, didn't get the nod. And then after the ankle injury and after all the hard work, I, I found what I was always looking for. And just bowling in an area. And the guys around me knew that Ed, Ed with the ball, he would pick up wickets. And I remember I just picked up fifers. I picked up a couple of tenfers. And I just, you know, it was just happening. Uh, I felt like I could get guys out every time I bowled, which wasn't always the case. You had to build it up, keep bowling the stock ball, keep bowling the soft ball, off cutter or whatever it is. And I just thought I did everything possible to make that side to the West Indies. Didn't even get an answer from anybody. Dizzy had moved on. Grandfather was our coach, and I remember, he, I think he got a call to say, these are the guys that have been selected and need to come back to Harare and get into camp. And he said, Ed, you're not one of them. And he said, I just don't know what the reason is. And I remember having a conversation with Alan Butcher, and he just said, the selectors have just gone with this side. And what really sort of hurt me about that was that some of the guys that were selected as bowlers who were go meant to go out there were way behind me in stats, but were selected, and then when they went there, didn't play. So, is, is this a classic case of, I, I mean, I remember interviewing a left-arm spinner by the name of Tendaichi Soro, who, in my opinion, just gets overlooked on, on so many occasions, and he felt that because he uh, was from out of Harare, Masingo, mm. uh, that he was basically, on that principle, he was continuously overlooked. Now, although you certainly have lived in Harare for many years, there's always that sort of that theory or that thought that perhaps maybe because of the fact that I went to school in Karoma, uh, you know, that could be one of the reasons why I just... I, I mean, I wonder what it is. Did they perhaps maybe feel that... Were there times, Ed, that your attitude maybe wasn't quite the way mm. that it should have been? You know, if I'm honest, I think I, I carried a, a certain uh, aspect of who I was. And I think having conversations with people, people probably thought I came across... A little arrogant sometimes or a little chip on my shoulder or I came across abrasive sometimes or whatever it may be. Maybe I had I wasn't quite the flavor that some people would, would have liked. And uh, and I, I never knew that until having conversations with people and I'm like, it, you know, spending time with you, you're actually not a bad guy. But yeah. coming into this, I thought, you you know, what, yeah, dude. Maybe you thought you, 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 the sun shone from various parts of the world <laughs> that went the eastern part. <laughs> um, but 
listening to that, you sort of then sit back and you think, well, maybe it you did contribute to maybe not being selected in certain areas. But I always thought that your performance was what was what what mattered, and not necessarily being liked by everybody or being from a certain part of the country, but or a certain color. Exactly. So you sit there and you think. Okay, hey, look at myself. Yeah, Ed, you could have been better in this. But, man, does that matter if, if, I'm, if I'm performing? Mm, yeah. I mean, there's big names. Shane Warne, Kevin Peterson. The list is pretty endless. I, I would imagine even to a certain extent Herschel Gibbs. You know, players you can mention around the world. Saurav Ganguly. The uh, other thing. Vinod Kambli, who, who basically were not particularly nice or who thought huge amounts of themselves but got picked because of what they actually did for their country. But the other thing, Dean, besides all that, is that Maybe I was injury prone. Maybe guys thought, well, he's going to get there and break down because I actually bowled a lot of overs in that season. So they're thinking, well, maybe he's going to let us down. So you've got to keep it balanced, right? You've got to think from the selector's point of view, the coach's point of view, bowling coach point of view. And Heath Shriek was a bowling coach at that stage. And I showed him time and time again that I, that I was good enough. Um, so I, I just didn't quite understand. Yeah. And then so you decided you, to try your hand at commentary. Now, the first time I worked with you was actually not long after that particular trip to the West Indies in 2013. You and I worked together extensively on Bangladesh's tour of Zimbabwe. Two test matches, three one-day internationals, two T20s. And again, you very cleverly alluded to the fact that the way that you came across as a player was quite abrasive and I guess some people would even say a bit of a know-it-all. Mm. <laughs> and... And there were people who were of the opinion that once again that abrasive Ed know-it-all uh, attitude was was brought into mm -hmm. the commentary box. And again, it's something that you seem to have worked on very nicely in, in terms of now beginning to understand how you need to conduct yourself as a commentator, which I think is is unbelievably big of you. I'm a complicated guy, Dina. <laughs> I'll be the first one to say that. And you know what? I probably did rub some people up the wrong way, maybe certain ways but it takes like going into the commentary box was a different transition because you know everybody thinks commentary is oh it's fun I, I gotta be out there commentary is easy I must do this I must do that you know but people forget that there's X amount of cameramen that are working so hard stats EVS guys um, people that are, that are that are putting together a production And you sort of think, well, I'm walking in there and I'm just going to talk about cricket just because I've played international cricket. There's some people that are out there that haven't played interna international cricket that are phenomenal commentators because they do that extra and not necessarily just walk in there and just think because I've played the game or I've got a chip on my shoulder or I come across in a certain way. So that took me a, a while to, to, to understand. It took me a while to grow into the commentary. And that meant missing out on work And thinking, wow, sulking, why am I not getting work? I know the feeling, Ed. Um, I'm not everybody's cup of tea. Maybe that's the reason. But at the end of the day, a production is put together specifically to give, when I was a kid or when I was a cricket follower and I'm still a cricket follower and a lover of the game, that production is put together to give you at home and the listener who's watching or listening the best seat in the house but you have the best seats in the house and it's your job to put aside whatever you have 
do the work, do the research, come across as best you can because it's a privilege, Dino. Not everybody gets this. And I remember Simon Dool said to me one day, Ed, this is one of the best jobs in the world because I'm doing what I love and I'm expressing my love for the game. Ian Bishop said to me the one day, I said to him the one day, I was, I was commentating and I felt a bit lethargic and he said, boy, what, you want to go back to Zimbabwe and what, sit at home? And what, what you want to go and sell a few things? What? And I said to myself, wow. This is a guy that I look up to in, in, in so many ways. This sort of gave me the biggest backhand, but in the most gentlest way to say, you know what? You need to take this as seriously as possible because it's not about you. It's about the game of cricket and the people that follow it. So were there times when you maybe, without meaning to, of course, that you didn't take it seriously and when you well, inadvertently you did think, hey, Ed's going to have a bit of fun, make some people laugh, but then nah. lose, the, lose the thread of what you're supposed to be talking about? You know? I wouldn't say not take it seriously. I think it's, it, it was more about, you know, that, that fun-loving sort of approach to it. Mm. You know, I'm a joker. Everybody likes a funny guy, but not a funny guy can only crack so many jokes to make people laugh because then you become a bit like, uh, okay, we're tired of your, your jokes. Like, can you tell us about the game of cricket? So it's important to create a good balance, but the balance only comes out in your character and your personality. You can't be Danny Morrison. And if anyone's listening, Danny Morrison is Danny Morrison, guys. Dean Jones is Dean Jones. Simon Duell is Simon Duell. Mikey Holding is Mikey Holding. Mark Nicholas is Mark Nicholas. Natalie Germanis is Natalie Germanis. Ishagua is Ishagua. Melanie Jones is Melanie Jones. Those are, and I can keep going on. Harsha Bogley. There is a guy that I enjoy listening to. But he does so much work behind the scenes that a lot of people don't, don't know. But they are so specific to themselves and their character and their personality. And that's who they are as commentators, and they do a fantastic job. When, when, you, when you went into the commentary box, obviously your perception of the game to a certain extent would have changed. So you were mm. always part of the squad. Now suddenly you're part of the commentary uh, you're part of the commentary team, so I guess a lot of the things that you would have done would have been pitch reports and all sorts of, you know, other little things behind the scenes. Now, one thing that you and I remember spoke about at length when we used to commentate, I s- certainly remember, especially against India in 2016. You and I brought this up time and time again. Was Zimbabwe cricket, who, in my opinion, had this theory that their spinners were winning games for them? But in truth, the spinners weren't actually winning games for them. What they were doing is doing an incredibly good job at restricting them. Mm. But they weren't winning games for for Zimbabwe. And also, the batsmen really struggled, the Zimbabwe batsmen, that is, really struggled to play spin. So mm. even if Prosper Tseya took a hat-trick against South Africa and somebody else bowled very well, you remember the hat-trick that Prosper took? Yeah, and, yeah. against South and, Africa. And, yes, and restricted Zimbabwe to a very gettable total. Zimbabwe initially got off to a good start with you know, taking on Kyle Abbott and the other seamers. Soon as um, the left arm, Aaron Pangiso, comes into the attack, the spinner causes havoc. And I guess the question I'm eventually getting to is, do you think that Zimbabwe did themselves any favor by, by continuously playing on this theory, this myth, that if we prepare pitches that assist spinners that Zimbabwe would actually do well because they didn't really did they 
Look, look. Every team uh, goes through a period of uh, finding out what they think will win them games, um, and some will fail, some won't fail. I, I watched the the documentary, The Edge, of how Andy Flower took these English players somewhere remote, and they didn't like it. But when they won the series in Australia, all of a sudden he sort of they started thinking back. Well, that made us stronger as a group and mentally tough, and that was his method. So Marble Cricket went with, or the, the, the coaching staff went with the method of wanting to select spinners. But if you're going to play spin, spin or go with the theory of turn, playing on turning wickets, look at India. When you go to India, like when South Africa went there and there was these, these wickets were just buzzing. <laughs> but the way South Africa played the spinners in that particular instance compared to how India played the spinners... And India batters are getting hundreds and South African batters weren't getting hundreds and then we're losing the test match. is the same as Zimbabwe who sort of think, well, we're going to play spinning decks, then we must be able to win the game. The batters would need to also play spin really well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's a good point you make. I guess the, the, the thing I'm getting to as well is that you know, back again in the late 90s, early 2000s, Harare Sports Club was rated by Chris Cairns, a very fine all-rounder from New Zealand, as one of the best test pitchers he'd ever played on because for the first two days, there definitely would be lots of encouragement for the seamers. But as a batsman, if you played properly, you were capable of getting a very big score. If you bowled well, you, were, you also were capable of getting batsmen out. There was carry, there was pace, there was bounce, there was movement. Everything that you wanted in a test pitch, you had. And then obviously, as the test progressed, the spinners would then have a say. Now, suddenly, because Zimbabwe opted to not maybe take a step back and, and reflect and say, look, we've lost a lot of our key players. Perhaps we shouldn't be playing international cricket. So they opted to, to try and take a lot of the sting out of the pitches and prepare these very flat pitches, which they thought would try and help Zimbabwe survive 50 overs or survive a day of cricket. Um, but it didn't really work in the sense that, yes, perhaps it blunted the seamers, but then Zimbabwe once again had a problem in trying to negate the spinners. You know, I watched the CPL final yesterday, and the Knight Riders, the Trinidad and Tobago Knight Riders, won every single game. And Kyron Pollard was asked, what was different about your team to the other teams? Because the ball was spinning sometimes, there were rain-affected games, there were wickets that were slightly slow there were better batting tracks and he said as a group they decided to take all the conditions out of their minds and concentrate on the bat and the ball what they can control their fielding bowling and batting and they won all their games regardless whether the ball spun regardless whether the ball bounced regardless whether the pitch was slow regardless whether it was a small field or a big field and I think it's, it's actually the mentality that goes into executing your skill regardless of what the conditions are going to present themselves and try and perform in that particular environment because once you tip the scale and say it's going to spin you're already sort of on the back foot because you think Bangladesh are going to play Sakib Mahedi Hassan um, Tajil Islam and you know it's just going to be a barrage of spin uh, they're going to play one seamer and oh my gosh it's going to turn we've got to start sweeping don't go back um Sakib is just going to bowl at the stumps, a little overspin, and come round arm. Oh, am I going to, going to hit on the pa- Oh, my word. Oh, here we go. We are oh, with 110 all out. Now, that's already the mindset that you're thinking about, rather than thinking, you know what, perhaps, you know, we're going to take him on a bit. Not in the, ne- in the necessarily trying to hit him out the attack, no, no, but, no. you know, you're not going to get a wicket here, bro. 
and I think Tino did that against uh, Said Ajmal. Against Pakistan, he did it beautifully. Some guys would have struggled against Said Ajmal, but he found a method that worked for him, forgot about Said Ajmal being totally unplayable, and made it work and got 103. Uh, six, uh, 163, he's listening. I said 103. <laughs> Probably get a text later. <laughs> So Ed, uh, what happens now? You, you've done obviously. You've we're all trying to now recover from uh, the COVID situation in, in terms of what it's done to the, you know, the, the working environment. But mm. now all of that aside, are you are you still? You've had the privilege of being involved with SABC for the last six years, and you've yeah. done. You've been to South Africa on countless occasions. Yeah. Now you've watched South Africa develop. You watched South Africa stumble. You you really have been privileged to w- witness a lot of very good and interesting cricket. What are you doing in terms of Ed Rainsford? I I do know that uh, you also wouldn't mind doing a bit of, I suppose, marketing as well. Yeah, it's interesting, Dean. I had uh, last year uh, Cricket Namibia contacted me and asked uh, me to have a, an interview for a CEO role. They're looking for a CEO. Um, I felt. Wow, I spoke to so many people. How do I approach this? What do I say in the interview? And I remember they just said, say, keep it simple. But the main thing about that particular instance was that Cricket Namibia actually looked for me and said, we would like to to hear what you say. We actually see that there's some sort of potential from a cricket administration point of view. And I went through the process. Unfortunately, I'd, I got to the stage where they went with someone more experienced and, and, and probably at that stage had better work experience in, the, in, in, in cricket administration. But for me, it was very eye-opening. So I've invested a lot of time in, in completing a business systems analysis degree and also a sports management degree. I've got a level, level two ECB coaching. So I would love to be involved in cricket administration at some stage. But I really love my, my, my cricket commentary. And that is firmly dried up <laughs> with with covid and the and the world sort of shutting down rightfully so we, we we need to understand this this pandemic and be as safe as possible but we do see that the world is starting to open up and i am looking for opportunities to commentate around the world and hopefully later in the year that uh, cricket south africa will also host some games and while we have got games lined up there are some uh, t20 leagues that are starting up slowly but It'll never be my right to go on, on those gigs. I will have to be sought out by the production company and get an opportunity to do that. I, and I won't, I'll, I'll be sitting there and lying to you and thinking, well, when, well I just, I'm just going to get a gig tomorrow. It's not going to happen. It's such a competitive environment, commentary and TV work. And there's so many experienced guys. So when I get the opportunity, it's always about taking it with both hands. So hoping for more work, Dean, and still investing in myself in, from a cricket administrative point of view and an administrator point of view because I, I do think that I have a lot to offer the game uh, in terms of uh, making it slightly better from my point of view and what I've learned from so, from so many people around the world and sitting with them. Ed Rainsford, it's been a real pleasure catching up with you. Uh, you've certainly been through a whole bunch of very unpleasant things from being called very derogatory names uh, on the boundary edge not because you're white not because you're black because well what would you say in between I suppose the mixed a mixed race as we would call it uh, as you are referred to as should I say yes. um, how you overcame those things I do not know and I know that there are many other players who've had similarities but yet you've you've ro- you've risen above these terrible names that you've been called to a certain extent i actually wish people i actually wish i i knew what those names were but i think we'll leave it at that but but thank you for investing 
your time in, and, and for coming to spend a bit of time with us on the podcast. Thank you for opening up your heart. Um, how you people who have suffered these, these terrible and horrific experiences are actually able to even talk about it, I do not know. But I'd just like to take this opportunity in wishing you nothing but the success. You are going through a very tough time with your mother as well. So may you just continue to find the strength that you need to continue uh, like you have done. And thank you for making many, many people in Zimbabwe and around the world turn up their television sets and their radio sets and listen to what you have to say. You have been an incredible inspiration to many people around the world. Dean, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk. Um, uh, By the the time this gets out there, they know I talk a lot anyway. (laughs) And they've been been giving me a go about it. Um, Let's treat everybody equally. Um, I, I hope... You know, there's, there's probably a lot more I could have said about my situations and my upcoming... I mean, time is, a, is an issue, I think. But I hope that people can learn from the experiences that, that have happened in the world and personal experiences and become better people, better communities, better societies and come together regardless of your, your caste, regardless of your color, regardless of you, the size of your wallet or your bank account or whatever. We're all just one big family we will never ever get along all the time but that mutual respect is greatly desired and i just got to give my my i spoke about my father passing away i have to just mention phil simmons who has been my dad for such a long time and his wife jason simmons who have held my hand through. I, Dean, we could. I mean, one day I'll bring some bottles of water and we'll talk about it. And they've I held and they've held my hand through so many things. My in-laws, my cricketing family, the people that I work with, people that I know, from cameramen to EVS guys to stats guys, who have always sat down with me and had a conversation and made me a better person and continue to make me a better person, and even my wife and my kids. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure being with you on the Dean at Stumps podcast. Thank you so much for listening. It was a biggie, but we said it was going to be a biggie. Thank you so much for listening. Once again, thanks to Ed Rainsford. We'll be back again pretty soon with another very interesting guest. But until then, stay safe and goodbye. You've been listening to Dean at Stumps, Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket podcast. 